Oftentimes, companies spend a lot of time, money, and energy defining a brand that they want to represent in the marketplace. But when you uh, lift the hood, you realize the company culture can't support that brand. So today on this episode, we're going to dive into that, and we'll be right back. This program is being brought to you by Headway Exec, leadership coaching and business advisory services. Visit us on the web at headwayexec.com. Now, enjoy the rest of this episode. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Hello again, everyone. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I am your host, Doug Thorpe. And as we said on the uh, segue there, we're going to explore this issue about how your company and business culture works to support whatever brand or reputation you're trying to build in the marketplace. It's one thing to, you know, get in that nice conference room or, or do an expensive offsite retreat and you go brainstorm and talk about this great all-inclusive and aspirational brand you want to become. But if you haven't done the work to lead your teams and give them direction and nurture them toward fulfillment of that brand, you got nothing. <laughs> so today my guest is an expert in this area and his name is Josh Levine. Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, you bet. I was real excited to uh, get into this because um, Josh shared with me, and I'm going to let him give the specific story, but he was a brand guy that got tired of having his clients fail on delivery of that brand once they got it all packaged and put the bows on it and spent the money doing the ad campaigns when they found out the company culture just couldn't support it. So Josh, uh, not to steal your thunder, but give us a little more of that background story. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, started out many years ago as a designer and I was actually working at a brand strategy firm. I did a lot of um, work with executive teams, facilitating, helping them understand um, what was going to be the their reason to exist and how to articulate that in the market? So that would be the brand promise, and that can be articulated. We all know with a with a logo and a website design, depending on what you're trying to achieve. But what I observed is that they did not have the employees understand the same thing that they were trying to convince their customers of, what this brand promise was. And that led me to this insight that really the value that I wanted to uh, provide for uh, leaders and companies and organizations was around helping get those employees um, aligned and engaged in order to deliver on the the brand promises. That's a big challenge. I think it was Peter Drucker that famously said, culture will eat strategy for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, actually, there's, um, uh, we like to think it, there's no actual attribution, I think we found, but we'll, we'll give them the credit anyways. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's lore, but you know what, it's lore that's helpful. So let's, let's go ahead and go with that. Absolutely. 
Well, I think any of us that's been in that seat of leadership knows you've probably stubbed your toe or bumped your head on that challenge. You you work hard to build a product or a service that really can hit the mark, be be successful out in the marketplace, and it may have some very aspirational elements to it. And that's wonderful, but now you got to deliver on it. And if your teams are not structured, uh, mobilized, motivated, inspired to do that, again, like I said in my uh, segue, you got nothing. Yeah. Well, so let's go back to the birth of consumerism in the 50s and 60s when we really started to learn about um products and brands right so procter and gamble famously really elevated the practice of brand um way the reason why they were able to do that so successfully is because it was the product that was being sold but if you fast forward to the early 2000s and now in the 20 mid 2020s um, more and more organizations are providing value through service and the services are either by the person, by a person, where you have a lot of customer interaction, and that's a perfect example of when culture comes to market, or, and when you have an organization, if you think about even all of those organizations making decisions about what digital products do and what all the algorithms can do, are they making the kinds of decisions that are going to really satisfy what the customer wants? And so as we've shifted into more service delivery over time and the release of multiple features and away from um, here's your microwave, we have discerning com uh, customers and these communities that are really looking for a lot more. And to be honest, they, they have expectations of a, of a lot more. And that I think is really where we're starting to see the kind of S-curve of innovation um, to really uh, start to emerge in the culture field where you're thinking about how, to you, how do you help your employees understand why you exist and they actually deliver on that. So you don't have to micromanage them. No things, there's too much stuff happening. It's too fast for you to be there. The manager's job, there's just no way for them to be, you know, telling you exactly what you need to do all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> I ran into that somewhat face first when uh, I joined a, a bank in my early career. And it was exciting to get an offer to go to work for this particular bank. They were they had a great reputation in the market. They were one of the leaders in many categories. But when I really got involved, you realize how hard it is to differentiate what a bank does and, and why do you attract a customer to come to a bank? I mean, you know, loans mm -hmm. are loans and checking accounts are checking accounts. And what else is there? Well, in our case, we were big on advocating the connection of our people. And one of our big brand statements was that, you know, if you come bank with us and you own a business, and by the way, we were predominantly a business-oriented bank, not a consumer bank as much, um, we were going to be in the shop floor with you. We were going to be rolling up our sleeves. We're going to be walking through the warehouse. We're going to be looking at your stuff. We're not just going to sit in our fancy offices and run the numbers. And that resonated with people. And, and it, back to the culture part, we had to go do it. <laughs> I mean, we had to, 
it, it wasn't just a couple of all-stars that got to pose for the uh, TV commercials, but uh, we all were expected to go do that. That's exactly right. I mean, that to me feels um, you're forced in, in a way when you're um, in, in a traditionally undifferentiated field and to be different and if it is a service business it comes right back to the people it's all about the people look that's that's why i got into this i'm i am here i am passionate about helping more people find more meaning in the work that they do and the way that i do that is by helping those companies that um, for which they work the majority of their, you know, their lives or their days. Um, they spend the majority of those times with those people doing this kinds of work uh, for those companies. And that that is important because if you're just doing it, you're just working um, to work to just earn a paycheck. It feels to me like it is an underutilized asset in in your life. And what's more is if you're able to define uh, a compelling purpose and um, articulate strong values, those people are going to uh, feel connected and engaged and hit that magic employee engagement. You're gonna look to improve that engagement. Everybody's always looking for the secret. Well, I'll tell you what the answer to the secret is, is you make them care and you can't force them to care you can't pay them more to care. It, 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 you can't give them more vacation days to care. That doesn't, that doesn't work. And so what companies are turning to is, are, are they starting at an articulation of why they're in business beyond making money? What is it you're trying to do? So give us a, an example or two of where this has played out kind of in a, you know, practical, tangible way. Yeah, absolutely. So one of um, uh, clients fr from early back in the day is a company called Credit Karma. So we'll stay in the financial space. We already talked about banking. So Credit Karma started um, out as one of these um, free credit uh, score apps. So this is a under um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, sort of underserved space. You know how hard it can be to try to get your credit score from one of the big three. So Credit Karma came in and said, look, we can do it easy, easier for you. Um, and what I and my firm did was help them define um, their purpose statement, why they exist. And it's to help more people be their uh, best financial selves. And what that allows them to do is to understand this isn't, it's not a, it's not the, uh, it's not a tactic. It's not, we're going to give more people access to their credit scores. It's about what they're trying to do. So be your best financial self. How else might we help you do that? And now you'll see, and they've been acquired by Intuit for gobs of money, you'll see that this opportunity has turned into many other financial, ass, uh, financial tools to help people um, be able to understand and manage their, their financial lives better. And this is, I believe, a very differentiated position. And it's not just about selling you or you know, making, helping you sign up for a credit card. Uh, it is, you know, the guiding light here is to really help people be that. And if you, as someone who wants to work there, understands that, then you understand that that's, you know, that is what you're going to be working on. And if that's something you care about, then that's a great fit.
Yeah, that, that makes good sense. And and what have they tried to do people-wise to support that delivery of, of services? Um, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. I haven't been in touch with them recently, so I can't, uh, confidently answer all of that, but I will tell you, um, that a colleague of mine actually headed up, um, learning and development there and she, um, her job was to really make sure that all those folks, um, were constantly working on, um, their, their own financial fortitude, but also, learning and developing. That's one of the big things that um, people need want now is to be able to grow and scale and their own their own personal experiences and skills. And that was a big, uh, big investment that they had made. So is that the entirety of it? It's not, but that's the little window I can give you yeah. uh, into that yeah. particular organization. I will tell you, though, that it's um, a purpose statement is that uh, the peak of the mountain, the peak of the mountain is the thing that's going to inspire you, but it's not going to be um, the only, it's not going to be, that, that's just one data point. That's just one, one, um, one message. What you really need to do is be able to deliver that through values and values are your guardrails. And those are the things that are actually going to become actionable. When you think about um, the, how do you connect the, that message, that guidance with the behaviors and choices. Because, uh, Doug, the, the, the goal, if there's one thing that um, your listeners should take away from, the goal and the, the, the intent of culture is about decision-making. It's about empowering employees and community members to make members to make better decisions every day. And so values, they're the, those are the three to five most important things that you want your people to focus on are going to be the connective tissue between um, what I do every day and the peak of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. Well, as we d dig into culture, all of those themes like empowerment, delegation of authority, uh, understanding of, um, I call them the guide rails of what a person can do with their job. It, 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 it's not about laying out the ABCs, although you might do that from a technical training standpoint, but in the healthier organizations where there's a lot more employee engagement, it's a broad spectrum. You say, well, here's out of bounds on the left and here's out of bounds on the right. But now you are free in your position to move everywhere in between. We don't care. And that's a that's a very empowering environment for an employee to work in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it, it if you get to particular or specific, then you're no longer empowering. You're just telling. Yeah. And, and, and people want autonomy, but they also want guidance. And, and that's what really well articulated values will do. It'll say, here's the ballpark. Here's where we want you to work. Because honestly, what, um, what a lead engineer is going to deliver on a particular value is going to be very different from an executive manager. It's going to be very different from an intern. And they all have to have the permission, the capacity, the understanding that they're going to they're gonna deliver on these things differently. That is fine. That is totally fine. That is expected. It couldn't happen any other way. And so that's why 
articulating values in a in a in a really compelling way, uh, in a in a way that is not prescriptive, is going to be one of the best tools that leaders can use to help focus an organization on the three to five most important things that they need to focus on. Yeah. I've tried to be a bit of a, a champion and a, kind of an evangelist for the idea as I work with leaders and business owners. I, I try to encourage them to change their thinking that if you've done a reasonably good job hiring your team, and I know that's a big if, but if you have, those people want to do good work. They don't want to show up and be average. So you have to show them what good work might include you can give them the spectrum of what's necessary what's expected and again I, I like what you said don't be so prescriptive about it you know check these 12 boxes every day uh, but rather give them the latitude to make some individual decisions and and really tap into their own creative and and academic juices that uh, they can bring to the work yeah. In my book, Great Mondays, I've articulated six components. And one of those components um, is one that we all know well, which is rewards and recognition. And rewards and recognition, in my estimation, are vastly underutilized or misused. And here's how it connects to what you just said. You can use rewards and recognition or moments of recognition to highlight or point out people who are choosing, making choices that are values-driven, values-driven behaviors. And that is the opportunity. Hey, look over here. Um, uh, Ashish is doing a great job and working together with his team and has basically owned this project but is bringing other people in. This person is really living this value that we call run together, hashtag run together. Uh, and and then, you know, depending on the circumstance, and I've outlined four different types of recognition that you can give um, in the book, the, the kind, you know, is it a big ceremony? Is it a small pat on the back? Here are the things that you can do. These, that's, that is how you make um, sure that everybody in the business um, understands that you're being serious. When you, you are rewarding, and it doesn't have to be financial, as a matter of fact, it's probably better if it's not. If you're acknowledging these people and saying, this is what is important. This is what is expected. This is what is rewarded. Because there's lots of different ways that we can all come at this. But let me share with you my expectations around what that might look like. Do you have to be do exactly what Ashish is doing? No, of course not. But it is a values-driven behavior. This is what it looks like. You too will get acknowledged and rewarded in your own special way if you're doing it that way. Yeah, I love that. Well, i tell you what, Josh, we're going to take a short commercial break. And when we get back, I want to get more into what your book is about and all the other elements that you're describing there. And we're going to do that right after this message. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. 
Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. All right, everyone, we're back. And today I'm talking with Josh Levine. We're talking about this idea of building the right kind of cultures so that you can deliver on the brand value that you've put out there. And uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit, and then we're going to get to to Josh's book. But I want to ask a hot topic that's on everybody's mind when we're talking about culture. So we're dealing with the questions of how do we offer the right answer for employees who have a desire to stay remote in many cases, at least have the so-called hybrid or flex option to make a call. But then you flip that around to leadership and management and they're saying, "Eh, I really would like you here working with us as a team. It's better for the teamwork, et cetera. What have you seen in that area, Josh? So much to cover here. So um, I'll start with the big, the big thing, which is in the next five to ten years, we're going to see that the biggest challenge to remote or hybrid work is the degradation of relationships. There was a study by Microsoft did last year in twenty twenty one, I think it was, um, where they found that uh, during the pandemic. Uh, teams got closer or people got closer with their immediate teams. You spent a lot of time on Zoom with them, but you got further or your relationships weakened with those um, other people that were not on your immediate team. And if the whole intent of the knowledge economy and all of the talk about collaborative agile work and all the talk about innovation that all requires knowing more people than just the maybe 10 people on your immediate team so here's the problem we're no longer or less frequently in the office which means that we no longer have the opportunities to run into people The common thing we all had previously, the common interest or subject was location. So companies invested in the office and that happened to be where those relationships were made. Well, guess what? That doesn't exist anymore. And so now those relationships don't, aren't being built and strengthened accidentally, right? By that time, by that, that time in the office. So now we have people who are we're going to see the reemergence of like my, of silos, but not even just silos, like micro silos of like your 10 people. Who else is out there? Who else do you know? You're, you're, they're just names in a, you know, Slack channel. And so what organizations must do in order to succeed in the next five or 10 years as distributed work takes hold is they must invest in relationship building activities. That has to be the, 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 that is a critical path for organizations to take. That is the role because the relationships are the synapses of culture. Relationships are the synapses of culture. If you don't have relationships, that culture is going to be different in every which way you look and you're not going to be able to be able to um, see a consistent uh, and rigorous uh, culture, cultural behaviors across the organization. 
I was working with an executive not long ago who was sharing with me the fact that uh, in in this department who on paper they've got like 400 employees and this executive is very sensitive to this whole maintenance of relationship and growing of relationships to keep the energy and decided to have an offsite social gathering and they I think they uh, probably did something like rented an entire top golf facility for a night and um, 125 of the 400 people came out for this thing and this company had made a commitment that they were going to maintain a a flex opportunity for employees to make the call on when you're in the office and when you're not and teams were going to be encouraged to try to coordinate that so that you could have meaningful time in the office, not just go to the office to sit on a Zoom call, but actually have the relational times in the office. But by and large, they hadn't had a lot of traction with that, but they had this social outing and the energy was through the roof and people just enjoyed it. Uh, there was a lot of activity. There was a lot of talk afterwards of the people who chose not to come to the thing. And it was, it was kind of the um, FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. <laughs> and, yeah. and word got around fast that they had, in fact, missed out on a great opportunity. So I said to the executive, I said, well, any chance you've thought about doing that again periodically, maybe once a quarter at least, do something to allow that interaction with everybody? And they said, uh, no, we hadn't thought about that, but now that you mentioned it, that's probably what we need to do. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, the CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, just announced um, a few months ago that all of his employees can work from anywhere forever, but most teams will be required to meet together for about a week every quarter. So this is this kind of periodic gathering is what I'll call tidal working, T-I-D-A-L, tidal working. So what you need is the rigorous schedule of bringing people together. So when we talk about hybrid, it's not just Doug showing up in the office when he wants on Tuesdays and Thursdays, because like you said, you're just going to end up on a Zoom call. It's everybody's hybrid, but they have to be hybrid together. And so is it once a week? Is it once a month? Is it once a quarter or once a year? That's all up to you. Is it locally? Is it regionally? Is it nationally or internationally? There's plenty of these 100% remote organizations oh, yeah. um, like, like Buffer who every year bring everybody together from around the world to one place for an entire week. So while it is incredible to be able to work from home, if you have that blessing and that opportunity, it can't replace that working together. So in a way, there is some of those old guard folks who are saying, well, you can't replace in-person work. They're, they're right. But it doesn't have to be 100% of the time. And what that means is we need to have a higher degree of coordination. You have to be able to bring people together and then they come apart and then they bring them together and then they go, go back to their homes. And so that is gonna be, you're gonna see the successful organizations are gonna be the ones that invest in doing this well and regularly. You know, I I agree with you on all those 
areas, and, and I'm going to add one more dimension. I, I do think there's a generational component to this that often gets overlooked and just kind of peanut butter smoothed over everything. And let, let me start on the one end of the scale. And that is over the next couple of years, we're going to have the spigot on for students leaving college, graduating and wanting to go into the workplace and these are students that had a giant hole blown in their college experience because they went from classroom learning to online learning and or remote, totally remote learning. And I know of several cases where students still came on campus and lived in the dorm, but never went to class. Yep. And, and they weren't even allowed in the dorm to gather in groups of 10 or more. And so there's a there's a social relational implication of that that i would argue right at the time when they should be learning how to build those kind of relationships that potentially will become lifelong relationships how many of us have college buddies that we still stay in touch with you didn't really get that full-blown experience and now what are you equipped to take into the workplace for figuring out how to build relationships in the office. <clears throat> yeah, that's that's an interesting observation. I mean, I think we've we've all sort of struggled and we're trying to recreate what we had before or or adapt it, but then in in a way what you're saying is these folks um new grads don't even have the before to kind of come back to and that's you know maybe the opportunity is inventing something new a whole new experience there's no preconceived notion about that yeah um it will be um for younger folks in the workplace it will be important to be able to have people to work with and in person I can see a world in where there will be more frequent um, showing up at working at the office or co-working spaces uh, for the younger younger folks who who really need that. And so perhaps we're talking about cohorts where the commonality is age and you know moment in in the workforce, or it also could be interest cohorts. Um, so like you said, you know, come together, we're going to, you know, anybody at the company who is interested in golf come together. Um, you got to look for those things that people share, those interests that people share. And so, yeah. um, I think in person is really important, but ultimately do not forget that the goal is those relationships. It's not just being in person for in-person's sake. Right. Building that relationship. And it, it's a multi-layered aspect of relationships. It's not just building that connection with uh, your immediate peers, but it's having the chance to be introduced to people up the organization, you know, more senior leaders in the organization or other departments with whom you naturally might need to be working to, you know, collaborate on a much bigger project than just your 10 person team is doing. And, and getting the visibility and the insight, because we all know that that kind of experience is what usually leads to promotion opportunity in the long run. You, there's an opening in this department next door, mm. and I'm going to apply for it. It's a good job. And I happen to know the top three leaders over there because we've worked projects together. And so that'll be a good thing. 
but if if they haven't had that connection opportunity because of the remoteness, um, it's a new hurdle that we've got to overcome. I think you might also see um, the same principle applied, but um, across organizations. So interest groups or business groups that aren't um, within a particular company, but are um, these types of, you know, in the past have been um, interest groups uh, like I had grown up in the AIGA, which is the Graphic Design Association, and and those were that was the network that I made, and that was how I applied for new jobs and got to hear about new things. So I think we shouldn't um, discount the same uh, the, this same kind of experience, but across organizations, you might see it even more so that we have this young generation that are used to collaborating online. They're using, you know, new platforms like Discord to connect with people, you know, users, people who are interested in the things similar to them. So if we're able to identify kind of business cohorts, uh, then I think, you know, people that are interested in similar things or have those relationships, those common bonds, um, that same principle is going to apply across organizations. And I bet this next generation is going to be even better at it than, than we are. Probably so. I, I wouldn't doubt it. Well, hey, Josh, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about your book, Great Mondays. Uh, what, what was the inspiration for the book? Well, I I could not when I had that epiphany um, in early in my career when brand brand promises weren't being delivered, I tried to find all this information out about kind of internal alignment and at some point realized it was called company culture. But then I was well, what is company culture? And the definitions there were many definitions, but they were none of them were really satisfactory. Um, and so I proceeded to kind of consider what what was it that we were talking about. So I essentially, my definition is the cause and effect of every decision that you make. And the point being that it's a system, it's a reinforcing system. And if it's positive, it'll go up. And if it's negative, it'll go down. So now I have my definition, but now what? What? Do, how, how do you do it? How, how do you um, enact culture, not react to your, you know, I have plenty of early on, there were plenty of managers that I run into and they're like, well, culture is not really good here. We're going to install a foosball machine or get cold brew yeah. on tap. <laughs> right. So coming yeah. from the Bay area, it was like, you know, baristas, you know, we have a full-time barista. Like that's, that's okay. That's great. That's not culture. That's part of it. Um, I could not find a satisfactory answer to the question of how, how do I build this culture? And so I worked with some colleagues to identify six components that will help leaders, organizations, and even individual contributors understand what it takes to identify the kind of culture that you want and then enact that, operationalize that culture. And those are the six components, and that's how I've organized the book, the six components of company culture. That's great. Well, quickly run down those six for us. Give us an idea of what goes into yeah, the model. Sure. So um, the first three are about the design. What do we want it to be? So if you're looking on a map, where do we want to go? So the first three are purpose, values, and behaviors. We talked a little bit about it early on. 
purposes, the top of the mountain, the big inspirational peak that you may never get to, but it's your why. Values are how. What are the things that we're working on? What are the guardrails, as we talked about? And behaviors are the what. That is the very reason that that culture exists, why it matters at all. The goal is to help people, your employees, make better decisions. So purpose, values, behaviors. Great. Now that we know where we want to head, how do we actually operate? How do we actually activate that? And that's through recognition rituals and cues. So we talked about recognition. This is identifying the people who are uh, enacting values-driven behaviors. We're not rewarding the outputs, how many widgets you've made, how many uh, bank accounts you've opened. Um, it's how you get there. And if you've identified the correct values, the outcomes you're looking for will happen automatically. So rewards and recognition. Um, so that's number uh, four. Rituals. This is, these are the recurring activities that um, build and strengthen what we call the synapses of culture, the relationships. So this is what we've just been talking about. What is the, you know, the critical point of success or failure in our sort of COVID-formed world? So those are the rituals. Those are things where you're going to connect with people that you don't normally connect with. You get to know them. Um, one example of a very easy one that people can do is they can um, start a, you know, a, a hashtag cats or dogs or babies channel on Slack. Um, that is, it's not a panacea, but it's a great way to get people connected um, outside of your own business group. There's a lot of others. And in the book, I've outlined four different kinds of rituals um, and encourage organizations and my clients to enact each one of those. And then the finally, the sixth is cues, recognition rituals and cues. Cues are reminders of our goals. What are we trying to do in the world? Cues are how we keep people um, coming back to the concept of our culture of purpose and values because we all have inboxes that pile up and we all have quarterly reports and we all have deadlines. So cues are going to be the way that we remember what we're trying to achieve both in short and long term. So for us old folks, you'll rem you know, we'll remember that in the corporate cafeteria, you'll have the mission statement up on the wall. That's a good example of a cue. Okay. That doesn't exist anymore. So what do we do? So cues can be anything from your values, um, you know, desktop or on your phone. Uh, it could be one of those. It could be a weekly standup where your manager or someone in the group talks about something connected to the purpose of the organization. And, and those are, there's a lot of different ways to go about it, um, but that is really, really important. And then there's actually a seventh hidden, hidden component that um, uh, we've started to see uh, kind of become a critical path, which, was, which is really that feedback moment. So you gotta gather that feedback. Is it working? What is happening? What's working? What is not working? How do we get that information and then feed that back into the purpose and values so that you get right back to the top? How do we start to really make sure that this is self-reinforcing and building that? So there's the six plus one components of culture. Yeah. Well, that's a great outline. And I think it's so important. And as you're describing that, I was thinking about situations I've had where I've been engaged to come into a company who has decided to 
attempt a culture change. They've created a framework of values, principles, and beliefs that they want to see going forward. And the, the first immediate challenge that happens if the company's big enough, just because the six guys in the C-suite put it together doesn't mm -hmm. mean all the, all the subordinate managers below that agree on the terminology. You, you say empowerment. Well, what does that mean? You know, let's talk about how far do we go? If I've got a guy sitting at a dial out on the refinery and he's only got 10 degrees of tolerance for good or bad on that dial, how, how much empowerment do you want to give him? <laughs> you know? Well, we can empower him in other ways, but yes, that's correct. Yeah. And, and, and well, what I'm saying is that's where people get hung up on the idea of what is empowerment. So they, they, mm. it, it, it is a work that has to be done so that you can distill the key aspects of whatever that culture objective is and, and get it disseminated so that you can begin this process of enforcing, training, feeding back, evaluating, nurturing, growing, mentoring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Here's, here's what I would say, and here's how I guide my clients, which is you don't tell them what they're, how they're going to deliver on these values. You ask them to tell you, what is it that you can do? And once we have an agreed upon definition for each person, then we can hold them to account because you're going to feel much more empowered and engaged in order to do that. Yeah. And look, if it's, if it, if what they say is out of line, then we can have that conversation, right? right. Like that, that's, that's a different conversation, but it's going to be different for everybody. And so that's, that is really the key here. The other thing that I'll point out and, and what you've said is um, exactly why a lot of these culture initiatives fail is that it's the CEO or the CEO staff who make that decision. And the work that we do we get permission from the, the CEO staff or the executive team. We get we ask them to nominate culture ambassadors, so that they give um, them that a bit, that they endow them with that responsibility. But they're not the the executive team isn't the one making the decisions. We get 15, 20, 25 people from across the organization that are in the business. It's not the fault of the executive team. They're just not in the business, and so that is hard it's arduous but it is in my experience the only way forward to really get to land on purpose and values um, and recognition programs and rituals that are actually going to speak to the employees i don't know what they are every culture is different right. and that right. is why i need to go in and we need to work with those folks yeah very good well, Josh, this has been helpful, and uh, we are up on time here for this episode, but thank you so much. Uh, tell everybody how they can get a hold of you if, um, if they're interested in knowing more. Absolutely. So we have all of this information up at greatmondays.com. I've got articles. We've got free resources up there, um, plenty more videos. You can also check out the book on Amazon. I've got the audio version as well, and you can absolutely email me. I'm always open to talking more about culture, josh at greatmondays.com. I'm also very active on LinkedIn. Just look for me and the lightning bolt next to my name. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, thanks again for coming on, Josh. I think this has been really helpful. 
I appreciate you uh, having me on. This is really important stuff. Yeah. So folks, we're going to wrap it up. I want to remind everybody, if you're listening in your uh, favorite audio streaming service, uh, you want to maybe hop over to YouTube and see the video version of this. It's uh, on a channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. We've got a lot of other episodes and information, and we've expanded the program. We're publishing three times a week now, so I want to remind everybody of that. And uh, look for us Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday every week. It, it will be on your favorite streaming service. So uh, thanks for listening in. We hope to see you again real soon. Everybody go out and make it a great day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.